Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. This episode of the Not Sorry Art Podcast is brought to you by Not Sorry Art School. Not Sorry Art School is my online art school I created two and a half years ago to supplement my workshop teaching when the pandemic hit. It became a really great resource where I could put all of my knowledge about representational painting into one space. We add one new section or demo every quarter to Not Sorry Art School and you don't have to pay a membership fee, you pay one time and then you get access to all of the past videos and all future videos. Not Sorry Art School has an online Facebook group where I have office hours every Monday and I answer questions within the Not Sorry Art School Facebook group. And there's also a wonderful sense of community on there where people will share their paintings and get great consensual feedback. I'm really excited about Not Sorry Art School. So if you're interested, make sure to click the link and check out the about page to learn more about Not Sorry Art School. Welcome Megan Collins to the podcast. I'm so excited for you to be here. I'm so excited to be here. Hi. Okay, so for everyone listening, this is the first part in a three-part summer book club series with Megan Collins, who I had her on earlier in the season, and y'all loved her. I'm so happy when you guys love the guests. It like warms my heart in a very special way, but everyone loved having you on, and you are a cultural anthropologist, a generation expert. I love your insight. So does my audience. So I couldn't be more thrilled for you to say yes and come back and we can talk about some books. So we went ahead and picked three books. The first one we're talking about today is the book for June and it's You May Also Like by Tom Vanderbilt. And this was such a good read. A little bit of behind the scenes, Megan picked these out. So <laughs> you love it. It was a collab. Them. It was a collab. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I, you are one of those people. I have so many people that I love their book recommendations and so many of yours have been like spot on exactly what I've needed to read so getting to put this together was just a pure joy but again I want to say thank you welcome for you know being on the episode I can't wait to to jump in thank you so much for saying that that's the highest compliment I could get because when I joined like the bookstagram community and chose my bookstagram name of the manicured shelf that was the idea of like, I was very good at giving people recommendations, not based on like, I like this, but based on tell me what you like, and then I will manicure some recommendations for you. So when you asked me to do this, I was like, this is so aligned with like how I read books in public. So I'm just very excited about this. I love it. It fit and a little, a double entendre with the manicure. I get it now. I like totally <laughs> overlooked that, but not because you didn't put a lot of amazing work into that title. I just like it <laughs> over my head, but I absolutely adore that. And I guess we'll just go ahead and jump right in so we can begin talking about, you know, you were saying curating taste that feels very pertinent to our discussion at hand, but the brief overview, if someone's listening and maybe you didn't do the, the reading, no worries here. You're not going to get a grade markdown, luckily, <laughs> um, but this book is about taste and why we like what we like. It was written by Tom Vanderbilt when I did some digging behind uh, about who he is. He's a journalist. He very much writes like a journalist, which I always actually kind of appreciate, especially for nonfiction. I like to keep my, my facts a little bit teased out for my opinions. And so I really enjoyed the pacing of this book, but he's written for Art Forum, which I thought was really interesting and also for Wired. And anyways, he, he did a wonderful job, but I wonder if you could give us like a layout of what the book was about and like, why specifically Megan, you chose this for a group of my, my audience is a lot of creatives, like why you thought this might be a good choice. So to give a layout of the book before I answer why it's a good choice. Um, I really like this book because it's very structured and organized. There's six chapters and it kind of answers questions and just dives into why people like the things they do. First chapter is like, what would you like thinking about your taste in food? The fault is in our stars, liking in the age of networking. And so I just like that kind of what you said about journalism. I liked how it was very organized. Um, That said, I also think that this book gets at a creative tension that I've seen and um, it's capitalism and creativity. And in fact, I, that's one of my critiques of this book. He doesn't really talk about capitalism or its role in anything at all. And that's why I think it's good for artists and creatives in general, 
Um, I came to this book because I work in media and content creation. And of course, liking is a, a function of social media. Like it is something that we're doing constantly when we're on social media, making judgments about, do I like this? Why or why not? So I think that this book is really interesting and rich and an exploration of that tension of creativity and capitalism, even though he doesn't say that, that's kind of the underlying current of preferences, right? Preferences as dictated by capitalism. So I think it's just interesting that he's balancing that without actually saying it, but that's also what artists constantly have to do. Yes. Yeah. And I actually, I love that you dove right into what I found to be kind of my big critique. I will say this is so pertinent again, because later in the book, one of the last couple of chapters, he says that one of the ways we are more likely to digest what we do or don't like, whether it's a craft beer to art to music, et cetera, is by first distinguishing what we don't like. And then we sort of warm up to what we do like. And so I I, I love it. We're like meeting the book where it's at. I totally found that the, the lack of addressing sort of capitalism, my big critique was was he really guised over the connection between class and taste. And to the point, actually, it, it, it like I love this book. It That particular thing bothered me so much that I went and found interviews with him. <laughs> I was like <laughs> trying to figure out if the avoidance of the sort of tie-in to like consumerism, capitalism and commerce and all those things was like, why was he kind of sidestepping it? And he did this interview with, I think, Google. And somebody asked like, why, you know, what's actually several people kept asking, well, what's the tie between class and, and taste? Because I think we all sort of know that it's there. And I, what he ended up getting at was that insufficient data, right? He, he very much is a journalist. I'm married to someone who his, their profession was a journalist prior. And I know that personality type. And it's just, I think it's less that he didn't want to bring it. I, I'm projecting here, but I think it was just that it's gotten very, the connection between class and taste has just gotten incredibly like hard to to suss out it's not as straightforward as like sumptuary laws which were like world royalty wear purple peasants wear russet you know that kind of thing but anyways we I think we'll we'll dig into that maybe a little bit more and I think you also hit on um you know we're talking about him and his perspective and I think that journalists have a tendency to see themselves as very impartial but we I throughout points in this book was like, this is a very white male perspective. Even the idea that you would go to define what you like in terms of what you dislike, that is a very masculine perspective of how to look at the world. Like we talk about the man box in gender studies of like masculinity is defined in opposition to femininity. So women like things and then men decide, I don't like the things that women like. And so even that I was thinking how much of that is true and a fact and how much of this is him being a white man and that's how he forms his preferences. But as a journalist who sees himself as objective, he thinks that that's everyone. And then the whole book is informed through this lens. So that's not to say it's wrong or incorrect, but, and he makes this point himself, context is really important for how you receive things, whether it's art or whether it's books or whether it's your perspective. And so I think it's important to like, acknowledge the ways in which that his perspective differs from ours at the jump so that we can kind of like dive deeper into those areas. Absolutely. That's such a good point. And I think, you know, we'd mentioned in an email previously, you had mentioned the sort of the gender kind of like defining your gender as opposed to to female. And I feel like that's such a rich thing to dive into, but to kind of even back up what you're saying even more, a study that I recently heard I don't know if you you saw, I think it was floating around TikTok, but it was a deer study where people, these um, scientists, they were male studying all this deer colony. And they sort of assumed that the hierarchy happening amongst the deer was a deviation from sort of our patriarchal sort of society. And they basically got it wrong. Well, cut to many years later, they revisit the data. These scientists that were, I think, a group of men and women, the women were able to sort of identify, oh, wait, no, the societal structure is more like this. I'll link the study because I I feel like I'm rambling. but, But it wasn't until they got a different set of eyes that they were able to sort of contextualize what was happening better and more accurately. And it's sort of been agreed upon that the, the the new science holds up a lot better. And I think that that's a good thing to point, like you said, to point out that like, you know, even he points it out in the book that like what you are and are not exposed to is dictates like everything, like even something that feels so innate as taste. Yes. And it's an ecosystem. Um, and to the point of the deer analogy, we'd like to think of it as 
or individuals who exist in a vacuum, but our preferences are dictated by this larger ecosystem that's much more complicated and not as easy to organize and categorize as we or capitalism would like it to be. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I even think at the end of the book, when he sort of um, concludes, he says, you know, the only, he says specifically that all taste is acquired. You know, we think of things like whiskey and coffee are acquired taste, but he was like everything aside from like, literally, I think he said sugar and sweetness <laughs> is an acquired taste. And it's, you know, I think, especially in a society that's super hyper individualistic. And I feel like a lot of the way we sort of carve out an identity where so many people are so visible, even if it's just through social media, is by like adorning ourselves with what we like and what we dislike, that we can forget that, you know, everything is shaped in a collective sort of sense. And I, I think that that book, you know, he doesn't, I don't think overtly says it, but I even think if all you do is sort of attempt to neutrally look at the data, I feel like you can't help but sort of come to that conclusion. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to get a little bit into like the nature versus nurture of it all. I think what I really liked about the book is I was just talking with Lincoln about this actually, is that he starts out with a chapter on like literal taste. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was an interesting thing to do because it sort of took, you know, our our, ta- our sense of smell and, t- and, and taste is kind of our most, I think, scientific set of preferences, because unlike whether you like the visuals of something or the texture of something or all your other senses, taste is really the one thing that sort of developed out of a necessity of like keeping us alive. Like if something is intensely bitter, we have a negative reaction. If it, if it tastes like off, like it's, you know, past its due date, we initially, we have like a physical response to it. And then throughout the book, he sort of compares all other forms of taste back to that touchstone. And I felt like as someone who likes to think, see things in black and white, that that was a really good choice for the book. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on like, you know, nature, nurture. I know we just said that taste is basically all context, but if there's anything about that that jumped out to you or caught you off guard. Yeah, I also thought that that was a cool and interesting choice and did a good job of framing taste as something very innate and visceral and kind of like, primal in some ways, um, which again is also, I feel like a very masculine way to look at yes. like these large questions of like, oh, yes. I do appeal think- to nature. is such a convenient go-to when you exactly. don't want to criticize our current situation. But- <laughs> um, and the way I thought about it was food equals survival and then getting pleasure out of food is then a useful emotion to reward good survival instincts. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about like how even in this construct, like developing taste is only in service of a larger goal. And in the case of food, it's survival. But what is the larger goal in the case of everything else? Like I was like, what what do the, what is, so that was something I was thinking as I was reading the book. And then also just, I think, This also sets up, and for me specifically, this idea of like things, and they talk about this on TikTok of like things can have the same energy, like Thursday in the color orange. Yes. (laughs) And I actually have this thing that I do in my head where, you know, when you're like eating something good and you're like excited about the feeling of like not being done eating it, like you're like, I have more of it. Yes, I do. I have that sometimes with thoughts where Mm. I'll be thinking about something and I'm like, oh, this is a delicious thought. And then like, I'll come back, I'll be like, what was that delicious thought I was having earlier? And I'll come back to it. And it it was interesting to me that I thought about it that way, because it's not fun or exciting, but it's very pleasurable in the same way that eating your favorite food is. So it's like, Mm. and even like the way that I'm talking about this, I feel like is I spend all day, every day thinking about articulating people's tastes. Like that is my job. And it's even hard for me to articulate this. So I've just been thinking about that too, of like so much of taste and preference is in the inarticulable. Yeah, I I love that. And I wonder if, you know, the thing that sort of comes to mind is I, you know, read a lot of these like nonfiction books and it's like very rare to find one that doesn't have at least a chapter on like primal appeal to nature, even if it's just posing (laughs) the theory of it all. And, you know, I hear a lot that like human survival, you know, all humans are motivated by what is it? Pleasure and pain avoidance or some form of that, right? And I wonder if, if taste, as an adaptation that we've made to help us find somewhere in the nuance of that. Like, of course, survival, you know, pain avoidance are always going to trump pleasure. You know, it doesn't matter if the house, you know, has the nicest thread count bed sheets. If it's on fire, you're going to run away from it. 
But, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if like that's sort of our human sort of incentive that that pleasure, that enjoyment, that taste, that getting back to that thought, getting back to the rest of your meal is sort of the incentive to keep you doing things that exist in that nuance. And I, you know, I just can't help but think that, you know, cause I, I totally resonate with the whole, like, I'm so excited to chew on that idea. I mean, that's, I think a large part of why I'm a painter is because it's sort of, you know, in a culture that doesn't always reward doing that, it gives you a moment to like really sit for hours and hours and hours and think through one thing and really parse it out. And I can't help but think like, I wonder if taste has like a little bit of, of is, is why that that part of us exists basically. And I like your, your, the word choice of nuance there. Like, I think that it is, and we said like ecosystem complex, like And I think that's why we instinctually compare it to food because it's also similar in that it's like very nuanced and also very personal. And then one kind of thread that I started thinking about with that is there's this show on Netflix that I watched that was about food. And it basically said that there's three ingredients and it's like salt, fat, and acid. And like, that's all of the three things. And I was like, okay, well, what would the three things be for like, other stuff when it comes to taste and obviously I always think about content so I was like what would it be for content and I said pleasure context and expectation and like these Mm. that's based on some other things that he says in the book later on too yeah but even just this idea that like pleasure is not the end all be all but just one input into our taste and like the same way that like fat is not the end all be all of every meal despite bacon being delicious (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's almost like the, you know, the pleasure seeking or avoiding the fat and the sweet is almost like the vehicle, the driving, the momentum, the action, and sort of the taste is like, where are you going? You know, I feel like those things work together because I, again, I, maybe I'm starting to show my cards a little bit here. I have a real ax to grind with the peel to nature fallacy. (laughs) Um, And so I, you know, I love diving into, well, why are we more complicated than that? Why are we more nuanced? And, And don't get me wrong. I love the criticism that we're not as high high thought as like we think we are. I love a good humbling, but I feel like sometimes we've swung too far where we just assume that we're all out for survival. And again, getting back to sort of capitalism, that fits a larger narrative that's very anti-human. And I have a very pro-human, you know, energy. And I, I mean, I think that I'm speaking to a bunch of artists. And so I feel like in order to be an artist or a creative, you have to kind of have that pull too, or else why would you set aside time and make a painting that maybe you won't sell? It just, it kind of goes against all that appeal to nature fallacy. And I just, I don't know, this book gave me a lot of sort of fuel for that idea. And again, I get to show myself, I kind of have a bias in that way, but um, I thought there was a lot of really good insight in the book that sort of maybe back that up a little bit. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 So um, another thing that you mentioned when we were talking earlier is the idea of, of, uh, I think we talked about this a little bit, but the idea of being bored versus overexposure. And um, I wanted to dive back into sort of that masculine framing because I, to get to your point, a thought that I have been enjoying chewing through is I have been thinking a lot about art is dead or painting is dead specifically is a a thing that people say. And I was talking about it recently in terms of like AI and how, you know, with the camera painting didn't really die. But another framing to that conversation that people have is painting is dead because everything has been painted. And I, when I first read that had a visceral reaction to it, I was like, that's, that's, and I couldn't tell if it's because I'm sensitive because I was a painter, but sort of one of the things I got at is there's this real pull in our society to sort of conquer, right? To go out and say like, I'm the first person to paint an all black canvas, or I'm the first person to paint square cubes, or I'm the first person to paint food in direct sunlight. And like, once someone has gotten to it and, you know, specifically during the age of like mid-century painters, it was a lot of white New York affluent people. I just can't help but think like, well, why, just because someone has gotten to something doesn't mean that we've said everything we have to say about that thing. Like, why can't new perspectives come in? And I don't know if a lot of other artists sort of feel this, but, you know, anytime I paint something in direct sunlight, I love Wayne Tebow, but I always get, oh, it's like Wayne Tebow. And I'm totally fine. All art is derivative. It's not really that that I'm frustrated with. It's the idea that like, well, once someone's painted something in direct sunlight, it belongs to like the first person who did that. And by first person, it just means the first person in this new wave of art. Um, Anyways, but I, I wonder if you could elaborate a little more on sort of that, you know, how masculinity forms, what the tie between masculinity and boredom kind of in your opinion. 
Oh, that's a big one. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I think that there's a lot that could be said about that. But in terms of like, what is boredom in turn is like a lack of being impressed or excited by or being above whatever is happening at the moment. And whether that's like intellectually or you require more stimulation. Um, And so I think that in our very capitalistic hierarchical society, we've kind of nurtured ourselves into inherently seeing anything that's at the top of the hierarchy as great or good or better. And so I think a great way that men kind of like a hack that they found to just immediately establish yourself as above it all is to just say, this is boring to me. I don't get it. I'm, you know, this is not interesting to me. And I think that that's just something that we've seen kind of become a tenant of masculinity. Like dad doesn't participate in the thing that everybody else is doing. Um, Men aren't into popular culture. That's for women. And kind of this rejection of liking the thing that everybody else is liking just because they like it has become a shorthand for having taste when really it's just a full-on rejection of participating in culture at large. Yeah, no, I I love that. And I feel like as an artist, like I'm just so many uh, bells are going off in my mind because, you know, and I think there's a lot we can say about sort of where art intersects with all of these chapters and ideas. But I wonder because, you know, I, I felt like even with like my work, you know, there's sort of this, instead of saying this is not for me or I don't understand it and it doesn't, I mean, here's the thing with art, like there's plenty of art out there about trains that I'm like, I don't know enough about trains to understand why this is so great. And it's not, it's not that I think it's lesser. It's just like, I have, you know, I've, I I just, it's not for me, but I feel like sometimes particularly, I do think gender absolutely influences it, but I also think, you know, just that the hierarchy of, you know, whether it's art critics or gallerists or whatever, there's this real tendency to forego, like admitting that maybe you're not the target audience and sort of saying, oh, it's not good enough. It's like a dismissal instead of a willingness to sort of say like, it's not for me. And I I wonder if that's because for centuries now at this point, you know, everything has been tailored to a very singular perspective. What is it? It's called like standpoint theory, where basically like the example I always think of is like with Arthur, like you can watch, watch the show Arthur and it's through a male character, but I never, you know, thought of it like, oh, I'm watching a male. It's just watching a male character. But if there's a show with a female protagonist, you're all, all of a sudden, you know, particularly I think men are aware that they're watching a female show. And obviously that goes for so many other intersections. And I just thought that that was a really good sort of connection to make. And I don't know, I just really valued it when I was reading it. (laughs) Yeah. So another thing I wanted to jump into in regards to taste and specifically with you is about novelty and sort of this paradox that the author brings up about we are deeply incentivized to be to to mimic I think he, that specifically the thing he brought up was he had real beef with the idea of the word ape because they did a study um where they took an ape and I'm gonna well, it's in the book but <laughs> basically <laughs> they took an ape and they had them like mimic something um and then very quickly the ape sort of got rid of the thing that he was mimicking for something that was a little bit more uh, practical or expedient or whatever it was. But humans who had been taught this trick or this thing kept doing what they were taught way past the point where they could have found another innovation for what whatever they were doing. All of that to say that to say you're sort of aping or mimicking is actually more of a human quality and something that he notes that humans tend to do. And it's actually important to kind of our survival, he sort of says, is that we do sort of mimic and copy each other. And yet there's this paradox that says people who deviate push the culture forward. An example of that I thought of was, you know, the first person who played around with mold on their bread and said, like, maybe this can cure bacterial infections. Like, you know, there it, that was a, a landslide victory for, for humans because someone decided to sort of deviate. And, you know, it's, it's that interesting sort of back and forth. And obviously that's on a macro scale, but even as an artist, there's sort of this incentive to do enough of what everyone else is doing that you're you're relevant, you're not too far out of left field, but innovative enough that you've hit this sweet spot and how it's almost impossible in the moment to know what that looks like. But I'm curious if like you have any insight on that or someone who studies algorithms, like if you if you have any insights there. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to do with expectations 
and um, delivering on expectations. And I think it's actually about striking a balance between delivering on expectations and surprising and delighting. That's a term we use a lot in marketing, surprise and delight. And so it's a little bit of both. You need to effectively deliver on people's pre-existing expectations of whatever it is, whether that's art or a piece of content or an ad, but then you also need to give them something exciting and new to make them interested or like to stand out from everything. Cause that's the goal, right? In our age to stand out. And so that's why we're seeking like this boundary pushing because it's being rewarded by society. But if we lived in a culture that wasn't, it wasn't as rewarded to stand out or break boundaries or push the mold, would we do that as much? Or would we do what was giving us um, the attention and the community that we wanted by being exactly the same as everybody else? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's, you know, the tricky thing to sort of strike. And even as an artist, you know, you'd like to think that, you know, that you're just making art and it is what it is, but you know, whether it's sort of a subliminal influence or you're more intentionally going on algorithm, you know, the, the explore page or the for you page and kind of seeing what's doing well, I mean, that's going to sort of influence what you're doing. And it kind of gives me it's something I thought about a while ago when uh, there was a conversation on TikTok about cringe. I believe there was someone who they were trying to get onto like SNL and they filmed in hindsight, what feels like an incredibly cringy video of like, I, I mean, it was, I feel so bad dunking on the guy. I, I have a really hard time being critical of anyone who tries something genuinely like creatively and then they get dogpiled, like it hurts my heart. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But this person tried and it was, it just didn't hit the mark and everyone made fun of him. I think they like went off the internet, but it was sort of this conversation around like, you're both incentivized to go out of left field and try something new. But then like the penalty for that is so high that I feel like whether it's conscious or subconscious, like, I feel like if you're a content creator or certainly an artist, you're always sort of grappling with like, how far do I push? And like, do I want to push so far that I'm ahead of my time? That sounds great in theory, but if you die a starving artist and then a hundred years later, people discover your work, like what worth is that to you? (laughs) I think this is, this is, I know exactly what man you're talking about. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of cringe and even like, what is the, what is the function of cringe or telling someone they're cringe? And I think this goes along with like shame and guilt, which Vanderbilt also talks about in this book, but in that specific example, that was cringe, but I also think it was cringe because it displayed a lack of self-awareness. So there's like different reasons why things can be cringy. And I think that a lack of self-awareness is one of them. But I also think that we're entering an age where cringe is kind of weaponized and people will be like, this is cringe just because it's free expression that makes people uncomfortable. Because I think that sometimes other people's being themselves or freely expressing themselves can make people uncomfortable. And then that can be cringe, but is it inherently cringe or is it making you cringe? Mm-hmm. So we're Good. in this interesting time where people are playing with it and sometimes it's a projection and sometimes it's actually like a reflection of that person's lack of self-awareness. Yeah. Oh, that's such a tough, that's what happens when I feel like sometimes we get these words and they sort of like grow. And, you know, the whole idea of like coming up with like a new, this is kind of an aside, but like a new word (laughs) to express something is like, now you have a more nuanced like approach to something, but sometimes what'll happen with the internet is it'll grow and it'll end up like encompassing where we used to have like three or four words for some things. Now it's like this big nebulous term of cringe that apply and we lose the nuance and we go backwards a little. So just think linguistics are really interesting, but no, I think that's a really good insight about like self-awareness on top of everything. And, you know, the cringe could be like, I would hope that I was self-aware enough to not film that. And, like, put and that also, together. we're seeing an appetite for cringe. So we're seeing people kind of seek out cringe content. Um, I haven't watched it, but the rehearsal with Nathan Fielder, a lot of people commented on that being like cringe. And so I think that also even just slapping everything with a good or bad judgment is a function of capitalism because it's Mm -hmm. like things that are going to be successful and people are going to want to buy more of are seen as good and things that are not are seen as bad when really we're moving into an age where people are like, all emotions are valid and they're all telling you something. 
And cringe, I think, is one of those things. And I think um, artists, more so than just having the talent and the ability to create, also have a desire to continue to live at that very vulnerable place of walking the line of cringe and figuring out like it's an exercise in self-awareness daily and doing the work of that and dealing with those uncomfortable feelings and emotions. I remember when we were on the retreat, you guys all talked about the dark night of the soul and (laughs) that so many people live their lives avoiding any sort of discomfort and so would never want to become an artist if part of that process is going through a dark night of the soul every time you're doing a painting and so even like the internet reacting negatively to this man I feel like to me I was like if you're if you can't handle this you can't be on SNL because that is you will be doing this every weekend (laughs) for like the foreseeable future so while I don't think we should bully people I also think that there is a bit of policing that's just inherent in culture in telling people kind of where they're sitting in terms of everybody else. And sometimes it causes cringiness. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good insight. That's, that's, I like, I need to like send an invoice like for therapy on this one. No, it, that's, it's so good though. I I love that Nathan Fielder show and I've realized, cause it's, it is painful to watch. Like it's almost like I can't go to bed right after like, because it kind of gets my adrenaline up. Um, But I realized, I was like, why do I keep watching it then? Because I'm a wimp. And I realized like, I like seeing someone push up against norms because I feel deeply critical of norms. And so if you're, that's what you're interested in, that's really good. But I love what you said about like, of it not being good or bad, like cringe isn't inherently good or bad. Because if we think about it, like, you know, a lot of even what I'm doing with parenting, like I never want to elicit like shame in my children, like especially overt or certainly projected shame, but a certain amount of parenting is like, Hey, like you, you just threw that at your sister that, you know, that wasn't very kind. Like you could have handed it to her. And it's not that I'm trying to make you feel shame, but like a little bit of that sort of guilt and that the author, you know, makes a good distinction that shame is sort of this innate encompassing like emotion and guilt is more direct at like the action that you did. Like it was, it's more like, I, oh, I, you know, tossing something to my sister because I'm kind of mad at her is like an, a negative social interaction, like one point down, like, you know, and I think that it's really good because I, you know, we do need to have that. Is this a good social action or bad? And it's not, doesn't always have to be that binary, but I do think like one of the powers of the internet to be a good force is that we can begin to have that, that communal, like, Hey, you need a, a call in, like, that's a conversation that happens. And I actually see it happen really beautifully on black side of the internet, honestly, on TikTok, where I will see these, like, it almost feels like I'm watching a masterclass of these women pulling together and saying like, listen, like, this is what you did. This is how you could have hurt this person. Next time show up like this, I'm here for you. But like you've, and it is like, it'll almost give me chills when I'm watching it because like, that's kind of what and I, you can't expect everyone to do everything. And I'm like, I always feel like slightly voyeuristic, but that's like exactly what it should, like it should be like, there is so much potential in this pro-social internet saying like, hey, thumbs down, hey, thumbs up without it being like a full in, like you are a moralistically terrible person. Oh gosh, that's, it just gives me so much to think about. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I think that one of the, one of the reasons why we're seeing this tension is because we've told men, especially white men, that they have kind of the right to be thought of and well regard and liked and accepted everywhere they go from like a very 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 young age to you talked about parenting I saw a video of Kate Middleton recently where Louis the youngest child is um he's swinging a bat or something or he's about to hit something or he a shovel he's he's shoveling something and he's doing it kind of wildly and you know his sister is sitting next to him And Kate, instead of correct him, she moves his sister away and says, Charlotte, girls, why don't you guys go move over here and moves them away from Louie? So that seems very small, a mom doing her job to keep her kids safe. But in that interaction is thousands of years of this young, white, privileged boy is going to do and act how he's going to act. And it's our job as women to construct the world around him to do what he's going to do. And so I think that we're in the first time in history where every single person has the power to be actually like, no, I'm not going to let this man swing the shovel around wildly. I actually think he shouldn't be able to do that. And that is 
we have this shame and guilt are tools to kind of like be in community with each other. And we've used them as weapons to control people, specifically control women. And we have not made men feel shame for the things that they do. And so they don't feel guilt for the things that they do either. And this is kind of the, the internet is the first time where these people who were protected from shame and guilt before are no longer protected from it because anyone can get online and talk about them and shame them and make them feel guilty for their actions. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so good. And yeah. And that, and that's so true amongst like other intersections and, and things that play. And I think it's an incredibly, you know, I always try to fight for the optimism and thing and not like in a, you know, I don't know, an, an overly positive, you know, what is it? Toxic positive sort of view of optimism, but more in like a earned optimism sense. And I feel like that's definitely a place where we have that earned optimism that like the internet does kind of create this space where you can have those conversations. And I love that. I think it's, I, again, enough to keep circling back, but I love what you said about like cringe, not inherently being a negative thing. And I think that that's really good advice for artists specifically, because you do live in cringe. In fact, I have kind of this like thought that I've been workshopping for a while about, um, you're either a John or a Paul, like in the Beatles. And I, I haven't, I, I'm not 100% sure on John Lennon's process, but I know Paul McCartney is this incredibly prolific songwriter, artist, musician. And one of the things about him, if you've ever dived, like dove deep into his discography, is that he puts out some cringy stuff. Some of it has aged really well in hindsight. Like one of the songs is, I think it's like Temporary Secretary and it's like, it's chaotic, but it gets stuck in your head. And I, who knows if it's good or bad, doesn't really matter. But I think, you know, the way he makes music is he just puts it all out there. And he, you know, I think you're either going to have the, the, the struggle with cringe or taste or worth or all of those things that really make up the dark night of despair, you know, the, the pit of the painting, you know, to sort of give context, I'm sure any creative listening is going to understand this, but it's that point when you're making a piece of art, and you don't see a way out. You're like, how am I going to, do I need to give up? And even like broader, like a whole body of work. And you're like, what am I doing? I've been spending weeks spray painting these panels. What is going on? And then eventually you do start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and you work your way out. And it's just, it's just par for the course. But I feel like where he is okay with a lot of that happening out in the world amongst critics with his peers, there's also people who are more of a John Lennon who will not make music for years and years and years and have all of these demos recorded and not released until after he's, you know, post-mortem or whatever. And I, I just think that, you know, with artists, you know, we can learn a lot about this conversation about like how, where, how do you let this conversation around taste and cringe into your practice? And how do you have sort of as much control as you can over sort of that play? Totally. And I feel like in this conversation, I'm coming to cringe really just being like a measure of how far away you are from understanding what the person who's creating the thing is trying to do or how far away you are from relating to that. What you were saying about the song it's like aging really well. Yeah. And I even have that of like, I look at my old tumblers and like, it is a little bit cringy because it's like, you know, I'm talking about how much I love Taylor Lautner. But I also was like, at the end of the day, this aged well. Taylor Lautner is the best of Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriends. And yes. I'm proud of the fact that even as a 16-year-old girl, I had, you know, bet on the right horse. And so I think that yeah, cringe is not good or bad. It's just a measure. And we see it as bad because in our capitalist society where profitability is based on relating to as many people as possible and reaching as many people as possible, having people react in a way that's like, there's a distance between me and this, and I'm not going to engage with it is bad for the bottom line. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that's, uh, that's so good. It's such a good reframing tool. And I feel like you know, I'll, I have to paint later today and I'll probably even like be thinking about that as I'm, I'm oh working God, on I'm honored. Oh, no, <laughs> my gosh, totally. No, I, yeah. Megan also has a podcast. Go listen to it. It's great painting fodder. Um, but it also, so what you said about proximity, I think is also really good. Last like, like point, And then I'll pivot is I remember when I was a little kid, my sister, I think I was like in fifth grade. My sister was like in third grade and she was Mrs. Claus and like the play, like the Christmas play. And she got up to sing and she like missed her beat, but then she kept singing. And I just remember as a kid being blown away by like how much, like, I wouldn't call it cringe. I think that's not a fair word, but like 
secondhand excitement, I think is a better, more fitting term for it with, with her singing. And like, she, you know, she rallied and she did a great job and it was wonderful. But I just remember being like, that is such a trip that like, I feel like I'm on stage, but I'm in the audience. And I just, I, I think, you know, it's a good insight to have that. Like when you feel that like cringe anticipation, you know, excitement, whatever you want to call it, that that actually could be a clue that there's something there, whether it's avoidance or drawing to it you know, everyone's on their own journey, but I think that's just like a particularly fantastic insight. But I also, I wanted to dive more into like taste also like pertaining to sort of artists and, you know, how we sort of navigate criticism or like, what if you are an artist who like you somehow intuit that maybe you're ahead of your time, or maybe you're living in a world that doesn't appreciate your insight. And like, what can this book sort of help us, you know, it, it, navigate that sort of place where you're like, I'm on the right path, but it may not be speaking to everyone right now. Like our, our culture, our society, the audience that I'm reaching, whatever may not be where I'm at now, but how do I keep myself going as an artist? Yeah. And I think that this again is one of the capitalism, like where this would have been helpful for him to bring that in here. Cause it's so tied to it because it's like, are you not being successful in capitalism and that's why you feel you're ahead of your time or is it your ideas aren't resonating with people? Like those are two very different problems and with two very different solutions, but in divorcing from the capitalism of, of it all and yeah. just like- <laughs> Hard ideas, to do, but yes. <laughs> yes, and just like feeling like, you know, your ideas are ahead and like people aren't getting them. Um, I think something that I have done is kind of like compete with myself or like really just lean into, okay, I'm building something that no one is going to understand who's alive right now. Yeah. So I need to leave behind a manual for whoever is coming next and who's going to eventually find this and pick this, pick up this thread and continue it. And to bring Taylor Swift up again, she references Emily Dickinson a lot in her work. And this is where I came to this realization of like, she is taking all of these ideas and narratives and the things that Emily was saying when she was ahead of her time, for those who don't know, Emily is thought to have been by some scholars, um, a woman who loved other women. And now that you look back through that lens, you can see it in her work. And so I think that now that I've had that insight, I see it everywhere and everything that I read and every, like all of the greats knew that they were ahead of their time in some way, shape or form. So they were like, I'm going to put this out in the way that I can today in the way that it'll resonate with people. I think Hemingway was like this, for mm -hmm. instance. And looking back, though, the people who know will know and they'll get what I was trying to say. And they'll be able to take this idea that I have and they'll have the words to talk about it. They'll have people willing to discuss it with them. So I think that kind of zoom out and think of yourself less as like existing in your one human lifetime and more of like, I think of it as like, humanity is a group project that we're all contributing to. And just because the people who you're supposed to be collaborating with don't exist in your time period doesn't mean that you're not contributing to that part of the project. Yes. And that that's a fantastic, absolutely fantastic tool. And, um, you know, the Hemingway of it all is so funny because I can remember being a kid and I don't even think I read the book. We're supposed to read the book. Um, what is it? The, oh, his main book. Hold on uh anyway anyways but I just remember getting it later in life and even within my own lifetime having that like wasn't aware like didn't like it didn't get it and then of course growing up and realizing what he was talking about and being like oh it's so deep it's so good I almost mm -hmm. wonder like it's that gives me a little like on another aside here like an advocate for like being kind to yourself because sometimes there's like beauty and like exploring something not getting it and getting it later and that I think it's just a fantastic thing to to sort of experience with but I, I okay I, I love another one oh, other thing I want to say about yeah, that, yeah. though, I also think that sometimes you don't even know that you're onto something or like you don't even know that you've discovered something like um, I'm not an artist. I'm a writer, but I read my old journals a lot and I'm like, I had it figured out. I didn't realize I had it figured out, but I did have it figured out. And like, this is a great way to articulate it. And so I think that there is value in just making things because there's meaning in them that you didn't mean to even put in there that then is there and it's created and you made it. Yes. No, that's so good. I, and that's, I feel like a lot of artists, whether they know it or not have 
like they do that. That is a part of being an artist. And that's why I'm always a big advocate of like make art even before you're ready. Even if you're just making it for your future self to look back and be like, oh yeah, I was, I was getting, I was getting there. I was on the right track. And that can be incredibly affirming because like so much of art is so untethered to things. Like it's just like, it's energy, it's vibe, it's hunches. It's, it's just, and so even like giving yourself notes to future self to be like, I don't know, I'm really interested in like class and aesthetics. And I just, you know, I, I don't know, I'm going to, I'm just going to make these ugly doodles. And then you look back and you're like, oh, it's exactly what you need. It feels like creatively, like getting like a mom hug. Like it has that same satisfaction. I don't know. But um, I, I loved what you said about like having humanity as a group project. And one of the things that I use a lot in my practice as an artist is I always think of it like fourth dimension thought, which is just, I am, can I explain what I'm doing to someone in the past? And if I was trying to explain it to someone in the past, what would I have to explain about today's society in order for them to get it? Because I think that conversation with the past can help us like pinpoint what about our culture is just innate to a human and what about our culture is like a completely man-made consequence of our society. And I find that a lot of times you know, attempting as much as possible to be a fish outside of a fishbowl, which is so incredibly hard, but attempting to do that has given me some of my most meaningful insights. And sort of on the flip side with talking to the future, it's understanding that not like your current audience isn't your only audience. And it doesn't mean you're going to be, everyone's going to be some famous, like that's not, I'm, I know that that's very slim, but the, the space that that can give you within your practice, like you're not just talking to people on the planet right now. Um, I have found tremendously helpful when I'm in, again, that death pit of despair kind of moment. <laughs> totally. And I think even what you were saying about like the fourth dimension of thought, I've seen that happening on TikTok with people, that trend where it's like, ancient woman what are you doing and it's like oh I'm washing my clothes and it's like in that and it's like it's a machine that does it for me and like kind of that is the conversation I see people having it's funny because I do something similar but I think about it as um like a university class studying us and what we're doing right now and like like kind of a professor being like and they went to work from nine to five, you know, like kind of like that yeah. and like a, a utopia where they figured it out and everyone's happy and explaining to that. That's like how I picture the. Yes. The I thing. love that. <laughs> no, I, I, oh my gosh. Okay. This, so I, I will also do where I'm writing a textbook. And what I love to do is when something insane happens in the news or a story or something, you know how in textbooks, they always had that, like the two pages that, that were like too. a different color and it was like an anecdote and it kind of helped contextualize all the facts. I was like, I'm always like, would this be one of those chapters? <laughs> like a caption on a picture like yeah. you know of like a famous speech sometimes I'll also do like a nature documentary but it's like about like aliens watching a nature documentary about humans yes <laughs> what were they what was the thing with the guns man like that was, <laughs> it seemed like an easy fix <laughs> I don't get me wrong I mean sometimes like the chaos of it all is the only thing keeping me like in my body because it, it is yeah that's oh my gosh see <laughs> uh, you are such an artist that's such artist thoughts I I love oh, it so thank much you. <laughs> um but I I want I don't want to I could talk to you forever obviously but I I wanted to sort of wrap up and say like if there are any sort of final thought like final takeaways you had about the book you know uh you know anything that you really that like you take with you from the book that's really helped you because like, you've read this in the past like yep. you know a while ago like anything that stands out that you use in kind of your everyday life I just think that rereading this I was I've been really stressed about AI and the internet and everything and just what it means for humanity and capitalism and creativity and I I have a belief that I want to believe is that no people like humans, they want to interact with each other and they won't just want to have an AI boyfriend and family and interact with robots all day. And I felt like this was very affirming and it was reading this book, even though there was a lot of things I didn't agree with and I wanted him to push harder on, I came to the conclusion that taste is just a it's a skill that we have to get to the things that we really need, which are connection and food and things that keep us alive and healthy and happy. And it's changing. And I think that the internet has freed us from taste being dictated by capitalism and capitalism alone and like the gatekeepers of capitalism. 
And we talked about this last time. I was like, I think artists are going to find their people and they may not be world famous and hanging in all of the galleries, but they'll find their community who gets what they're doing and appreciates their art. And I hear that happening more and more um, with the things that I'm reading. And even like the news, people are like, the news media is dying, but people are going to individuals for um, specific news about specific things. Like I was thinking to this podcast that I highly recommend called Vibe Check. And they were talking about Jessica Valenti's um, abortion everyday newsletter. And I was like, I do that too. She is my go-to source yep. for news about reproductive rights. And so rather than subscribe to the New York Times and have their lens, you're able to create your own newspaper kind of based on your own individual tastes. And so I think that we're kind of at a fork in the road where the algorithms are going to try to hurt us into what is efficient for capitalism, or we can take a step back and think about why we like the things we like and refocus on our flexing our taste muscles to really get at what is going to make us happy and live good lives and really use the internet to dictate a new wave of humanity by kind of weaponizing our tastes and our likes. Yes. Oh, so good. So fantastic. <laughs> I, I love that so much. And man, I, oh, I just love hearing your thoughts and I'm very excited that we have two more book club episodes because again, I could just chat with you forever and you'd be like, okay, Scary, get out of here. No, but, I um, literally was like, I was like, honestly, we could have done one episode per chapter. I feel like you know? about this book when I was oh, reading I it, I was like, I was like making notes and I was like, literally we could just sit in a room next to each other reading this book and talk about it for six weeks. Like, Oh yeah. It's it's really good. (laughs) I could could deep dive. No, that is like for sure. My love language. I am like a, like, let's think about this forever. And then, you know, if you're not that kind of person, people are like, go do something. (laughs) I can, I can tell when I've gotten good at reaching the point where I'm like, okay, I think it's fine. I'm good at presenting because I can tell when I've lost people like, Oh, I've gone too deep. The eyes glaze. Yeah. Attention starts to fade. Yeah. No, you're no longer interested interested in unpacking this to the level I am. (laughs) Yes. Well, if I have as much stay power as, you know, uh, I hope I do, then people will hear these things eventually, but I'm just, I'm honing (laughs) it in. I'm I'm making my craft, but thank you again for, for being here. I'm really excited for next week's episode. Thank you everyone for reading along with June's book club. I'm excited to see you a month from now where we'll discuss our next book, which is Chromophobia. I am so excited to discuss that book with you. That was one of those books where I read it, I think a chapter of it in college, and then I reread it kind of recently. And it is just like, I could probably read it once a year and still get something (laughs) new out of it. And it's a tiny book too, but I hope everyone enjoys that book. Thank you again, Megan. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and being here. Thank you for having me. This is what I want to do with my life, read books and talk about them. So this was awesome. Thank you. (laughs) 